Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Once again, we welcome you to Constitution Classroom here on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We are joined by Colonel John Eidsmo with the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, I understand you have quite a topic for us to explore today. We've been going through a series here. We started this last week talking about you're dead, now what? And that's going to be true of every one of us someday. If the Lord doesn't come in our lifetime, then we're all going to die. And what happens after that? Well, the last time we looked at this, we looked at the fact of heaven. Heaven is spoken about in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And as our Lord Jesus Christ promised us, I go to prepare a place for you. In my mother, father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will return and bring you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. That's a promise from our Lord Jesus Christ, that there is something after death, and it's going to be very wonderful. But what happens when we die? And I'm sure there are a lot of people here that are going to be wondering that. And people that are believers, people who are Christians, but nevertheless, when you close your eyes for the last time in death, then undoubtedly the question is going to be in your mind, now what happens? And we do believe in the resurrection. We believe that, that the trumpet call of God, that through his archangel, that we're going to be raised from the dead. But what happens in the meantime? I recall, oh, nearly 50 years ago that Marlene and I had been married for a very short time at that time, and her grandfather passed away, a strong believer. And it was a blustery day for a funeral up in Minnesota in January. And anyway, he, he and his wife had 10 children. They'd come over from the Netherlands. And the, all the 10 of the children were believers, as the parents were as well. And I remember we went out to the cemetery after the funeral. It was, I think, possibly the first funeral that I had ever spoken for. But... Anyway, they had already buried him, and I remember them pointing down to the ground there and saying, he's not there, he's up there, pointing to heaven. And that is true, but it is not quite complete. Yes, the better part of us up there in heaven, as Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And he says that, He's torn between whether to depart and be with Christ, which is better, or to remain here on earth and be with you, that is, these problem believers, which is more needful for you. But between now and the resurrection, we are kind of like, you might say, bodiless spirits, disembodied spirits. Our spirit, our soul, is there in heaven, but... The physical part of us, the body, is still down there in the grave. And it, that disembodied spirit up in heaven, it is going to be in a blessed state. It'll be happy, but it won't be complete. It won't be complete until the resurrection. So we have this period between death and the resurrection. And 
what actually happens during that period? Well, sometimes when you try to explain what happens, I guess maybe lawyers especially do this, we try to explain what doesn't happen first. And so let me begin by giving some false views here and explaining why these views are false. And one of the first of these is that when we die, it's over with. You think about the Sadducees that we read about in the New Testament. And the Sadducees, of course, were enemies of Christ, but they were also enemies of the Pharisees. The Pharisees also had their objections to Christ. But you have these two groups. The Pharisees were, you might say, the biblical literalists of the day. They took the Old Testament, and particularly the Old Testament law, and tried to apply it as literally as they possibly could. And Jesus' complaint about the Pharisees was that they had all of this outward obedience to the law, but inwardly, they were, as he calls it, whitewashed sepulchers, whitewashed tombstones, clean on the outside, but corruption on the inside. And on the contrary to them, you have the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. I always tell people, if you have trouble remembering the Sadducees versus the Pharisees, just remember, the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection, and that's why they were so sad, you see. <laughs> but, but anyway, commonly it said the Sadducees did not believe in life after death. That may not be entirely accurate. They may have believed in some kind of shadowy existence, like the Hades that we read about, in the Greeks and so on, but as far as a resurrection, no, they did not. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection partly because they didn't accept the Old Testament except for the first five books. The rest of the Old Testament, they didn't believe to be the Word of God. And even in those first five books, you still see evidences of eternal life, like, for example, Enoch, walked with God and was not, for God took him. But I like the way Jesus countered the Sadducees when they came and they tried to trap him with a trick question. They thought they had him with this. And to paraphrase what they say, they come to him and they say, Jesus, we want to ask you a question. You know, you believe in this resurrection. Now, let's say you've got a man who marries a woman, and he has six brothers. Anyway, the man dies, and then after he dies, then his wife marries his brother, and this was an obligation under Jewish law that a brother was to take the widow of his brother as a wife in order to provide children for his brother through him. And anyway, so he takes her, and then he dies, and likewise, all of the other brothers marry her, and each one of them dies, and then she dies. Now, this resurrection you're talking about, Jesus, which one of them is going to be your husband of the resurrection? We got you there, don't we? And Jesus simply says, well, you do err, not knowing the scriptures, because in the heaven, we're going to be like the angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage. I'll simply say about that, that doesn't mean that we won't recognize our spouse in heaven. 
and that our spouse won't be special to us. It means, at the very most, that marriages will not be taking place in heaven. It doesn't mean that those who are married here on earth will not be married in heaven. But regardless of that, he said, furthermore, you only accept those first five books. Now, let's look at those first five books and see what they say. In those first five books, you see right there at the beginning of Exodus, where, and you accept Exodus, don't you, Pharisees, or Sadducees, you accept Exodus. Now, Moses has God appearing to him in the burning bush. And God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. Now, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, by Moses' time, have been dead for 400 years. But God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God is the God of the living. Okay, if God is the God of the living, and he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then Abraham and Isaac and Jacob must be what? Living. And so the idea that when we die, it's over with, even according to the books that you Sadducees believe in, that's not true. There is life after death. So there's one mistaken view, when we die, it's over. Another is that the dead will live on so long as we remember them. Now, I'm all for remembering ancestors. And one of the strange things, maybe it's not so strange, but it seems to be fairly universal around the world, is that people remember their ancestors pretty much up to about great-grandparents and not much thereafter. Of course, I knew my parents very well. I knew my grandparents on my mother's side, my father's side. They died before I was born, but I knew a lot about them. I knew my I knew about my great-grandfather and how he had come over from Norway. Beyond that, I have names and dates of ancestors going back into the 1600s, but I know nothing about them other than that. But anyway, we have this idea today that if we honor our ancestors, that they will somehow live on. Particularly, that is a view in the Orient. It's the view of the Shinto religion in Japan, basically kami or ancestors, that we worship them to keep their memory alive. It's also true in Taoism and especially true in Confucianism. And that's one of the reasons why there is a lot of conflict between Confucianism and Buddhism in China, that, you know, Buddhists stress the celibate life and so on. And if you believe that your eternity, your life after death, is going to be secure so long as your ancestors, so long as your descendants remember you, and then your son decides to become a celibate Buddhist monk, well, what does that do to your immortality? Anyway, so that was the problem in the Orient, but we've seen this, I've seen this on tombstones, I've seen it in sympathy cards and so on, things like, as long as I live, you will live. As long as I live, you will be remembered. As long as I live, you will be loved. Or another one that's put this way many times is, to live in the hearts of those we love is not to die. Well, again, 
It is good to remember ancestors, and it's good to leave a legacy so future generations will remember you. But that has nothing to do with life after death. Beautiful thought, but untrue. The dead do not live on just because we remember them. And they do not cease living just because we forget them. So the idea that the dead live on so long as we remember them, that's a false view. A third false view is that the dead somehow become part of nature. Mary Fry had a poem that is many times used at funerals and sympathy cards and so on. Even seen parts of this engraved on stones. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glint on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you wake in the morning hush, I am the swift unlifting rush. Of quiet birds in circling flight, I am the soft starlight at night. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. Again, maybe a nice sentiment, although I'd like to think that my life in eternity is going to be something more than just being blowing around with the wind. But that is a common view, especially pantheists, that is, people who believe God is nature and nature is God and we're just all part of nature and so on. But again, absolutely nothing in Scripture to suggest that the dead become part of nature, or that they're in the wind or the rain, things like that. Another false view. Look at a fourth false view, and that's that the dead linger around us. Those we love don't go away. They walk beside us every day, unseen, unheard, but always near, still loved, still missed, and very dear. There are some who believe that the dead linger around us for 40 days before they ascend into heaven. And they base that scripturally on the fact that Jesus, after his resurrection, had a ministry on earth for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. But that was for a specific purpose. And don't forget something else. Before Jesus lingered in the earth for 40 days, he was resurrected from the dead. Unless you can pull that off, you're not going to be around for 40 days. So, again, that's another false view that they linger around us or that they're hovering over us and so on, watching over us and, and so on. Nice thought. They might be watching from heaven, but from the earth, no. Now a fifth view, and that is the view of purgatory. And if we have... Roman Catholic listeners, I don't mean to offend on this, but I'm afraid I don't see that there is a clear scriptural case for purgatory. The idea of purgatory is that we need to be purified in order to enter heaven. One verse that is often cited for it is Revelation 21, 27. Nothing unclean shall enter heaven. And that is true. However, we are cleansed not by purgatory, but by the blood of Christ. 
we think about one passage in Second Maccabees that the Catholic Church accepts as part of the Word of God, and Protestants generally do not, in which there are soldiers who die wearing idols as jewelry. jewelry. Judas Maccabeus makes an atonement for them so that they may be delivered from their sin. But again, that doesn't even talk about purgatory, but that's out of a book, Second Maccabees, that Protestant Christians generally do not accept as being the Word of God. But in the Word of God itself, right in the Gospels, we see the thief on the cross and how when he says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus says to him, Verily I say unto you, This day thou shalt be with me in paradise. Not after thousands of years in purgatory, but this day thou shalt be with me in purgatory. I'm sorry, in paradise. Well, now let's look at a sixth view, and that is non-existence until we are recreated at the resurrection. Some Unitarians have held this view. Some others do as well. Some liberal Protestant theologians hold this view that at death, we simply cease to exist. However, at some time in the future, we will be recreated by the mind of God at the resurrection. Again, Scripture clearly refutes this. Scripture clearly talks about absent from the body, present with the Lord, and the idea that we are non-existent during that time, Scripture very clearly refutes that position. Well, let's go on to a seventh view, and this is that we will be reincarnated. Transmigration of souls is the term that is sometimes used for this, that some believe that all the souls were originally created way, way back, maybe even at creation itself or shortly thereafter, and that when you die, then you will come back as another person, and then as another person, and another, and so on. Whether that's immediate, whether you are reborn as another person, the very instant you die as the former person, or whether there's a time in between, they may disagree on that. But the idea is reincarnation, as we call it. Now, the Hindus, probably as much as anyone else, have advocated a belief in reincarnation. And in their view, though, you will come back as another person, or maybe as an animal or something else, because of what they call karma. Understanding Hebrew thought, you have dharma, which is duty, certain things that you are obligated to do or not do. And then you have karma. Karma means the basically the guilt or the reward that you have based on what you've done things, bad things and the like, build up good deaths and bad deaths and so on. As you sometimes say, what goes around comes around, that you're going to have to pay for the bad things that you've done in this life and work that off in the next life. 
And if you've been a particularly bad person, in the next life, you might come back in a very different way from now. You might come back as a member of a lower class. You have these various classes, the Brahmin class, the higher class, and so on. And then you have the untouchable class, the lowest class. You may come back as a lower caste person, or possibly even come back as an animal, as a cow in particular. And that's one of the reasons why Hebrews will not eat beef. They believe that that cow might very well be your grandmother come back in the next life to work off her bad karma. It's interesting. You go to India and to Nepal, and Nepal has even a higher percentage of Hindu than India does, about 80%. But in those countries, you can be a Christian or a Muslim or something else, but you can't proselytize, you can't convert others. And also, in some of their laws, you're not allowed to convert yourself. There was a Baptist pastor in Nepal. I had the privilege of speaking in Nepal to the All Asia Creation Conference some years ago, and I was told there of a Baptist pastor who had spent two years in jail awaiting trial. They finally dismissed the charges, but awaiting trial for eating beef. Even though the law in Nepal says only Hindus are prohibited from eating beef, Christians and other religions are not. And he said, well, I'm not Hindu, so how can this law apply to me? And the answer that the local authorities tried to give on this is, oh, but you are. You see, the law prohibits you from converting, and so since you were born Hindu, you can't convert, and therefore you are still Hindu, and therefore the law against eating beef applies to you. Well, after he'd been in jail about two years, the charges were finally dismissed. But anyway, that shows a little bit of their philosophy there, the, the reincarnation and how this might have somebody coming back even as an animal. Now, the ultimate hope in the Hindu reincarnation cycle is not heaven. Rather, it is what they call nirvana. And Westerners often think nirvana is something like heaven, but it is not. It is more like oblivion. In other words, nothingness, or at the very most, being absorbed into some kind of world consciousness or world soul. And so Hindus see reincarnation not as a blessing, but as a curse. Now, the scriptures tell us, as we quoted earlier there in the book of Hebrews, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. So the scriptures would expressly refute the idea of reincarnation. But we'll come back to more of this after the break. This is Constitution Classroom. We are with Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. 
talking about what happens after you die. And Colonel, I have to say, the whole reincarnation angle that we ended on in the last segment, it's intriguing, but uh, it kind of scares me too. <laughs> I, if, I, I don't personally believe in reincarnation, but, uh, but I'm kind of a pessimist in the sense that if, if, it, were, if it were something, I, I would probably come back as, as something really undesirable, like a carp. <laughs> or a sucker fish or something. Well, I was speaking for an Eagle Forum conference one time a few years ago and told them that I was going to be flying out of the St. Louis airport right after that to go to Nepal to speak for the All Asia Creation Conference. And I was told that it isn't a good idea to wear leather over there because leather could be made from one of their ancestors. And so I said, instead, I've got a pair of Stingray cowboy boots that I'm wearing and don't ever hear of anybody coming back as a Stingray, although personally, I think <laughs> that might be kind of cool for a while, but I got the nickname of, skin of Stingray for a while as a result of that. But anyway, a couple of the problems with reincarnation is... If there is reincarnation, besides the fact that Scripture itself refuses it, but if there is reincarnation, why is it that most people remember absolutely nothing of any past lives? You think that you have more memories of these. Once in a while, something like this starts to creep into consciousness. Some years ago, there was a lady who wrote a book claiming that in a previous life, maybe a century or so earlier, she had been a girl in a little town in Ireland, a girl by the name of Bridie Murphy. And this created quite a sensation. And when this came out, quite a few other people started remembering, well, I was so-and-so and things like that too. But anyway, this was kind of debunked because researchers... The town that she claimed to have come from did exist, but there was no record in the town of anybody named Bridie Murphy ever having been born there, or ever having lived there. And buildings that she said were there when she was a childhood, the historical evidence indicates no such buildings and so on. And so really what she said, there were a few things true in it, but things that she could have found out by other sources. But... There was so much that turned out to be mistaken that Bridie Murphy's was largely discounted. But another thing, if people do claim to remember having been in a previous life, usually it's of somebody famous. Oh, yes, I was Cleopatra, or I was Napoleon, or I was Marie Antoinette. You don't really have a whole lot of people that say, oh, yes, I remember it clearly. I was Joe the peasant working <laughs> a little plot of land in the 1600s. And, but anyway, so that tells me that this is more the product of an imagination than it is of any actual reincarnation. But here's another really difficult question to raise here. If people are reincarnated and they're in a miserable state right now, they're in that miserable state, poverty and disease and whatever it is, because they're working off bad karma from past lives. 
Now, if that's the case, why should there be any such thing as Christian charity? Why should we be helping them? First of all, they deserve it because of their past karma. But secondly, if we help them and make their life better, they're not going to work off their karma, and they'll just be destined to repeat this in another life. So if we really believe in the Hindu concept of reincarnation, why should there be any such thing as Christian charity? point is, reincarnation simply does not make sense and is directly refuted by the scripture, and so I'm presenting that as a seventh false view. Now, an eighth view that I'm going to say is, let's just say it's a questionable view, is that the dead see and know everything that we are doing. Somebody graduates from college, and they think, oh, my grandmother is watching from heaven, and she, she is so proud of me. Is she? I don't know. The dead in heaven, I believe, are conscious. How much they know about things going on here on earth, the scripture isn't really very clear on that. We do read in the book of Hebrews about the cloud of witnesses, and that witness, the term witnessed can simply mean a testimony of somebody in the past that we see, or it can mean somebody who's actually watching. Marturion is the word. It could mean either of those. It could mean that as we are running the race of life, we have this cloud of witnesses that is the saints of past generations who are there in the reviewing stand watching and cheering us on. It could mean that. It could mean they have some conscience of this is what we were doing. We read in Revelation chapter 6 and 7 of the white-robed martyrs around the throne who ask the Lord how long before we will be avenged. They seem to be aware of what's going on here on earth. And so there seems to be some awareness. We think of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham where he is comforted, whereas the rich man, when he dies, not because he's rich, but because he's lived a wrongful life and he is in torment. But he is aware of Lazarus over in the bosom of Abraham. And he is also aware that his brothers are on earth and that they need to repent of their sins or they'll end up like he does. So there is apparently some awareness of what is going on on earth, but complete awareness? Probably not. In fact, sometimes I'm hoping that my parents don't know everything I'm doing here on Earth. But, okay, so let's look at a couple more mistaken views. One of them is that the dead become angels. When I was a little boy, I was given a book. It was titled The Littlest Angel. And did you ever see that book, Brian? Yeah, actually, I think I saw the, the television movie that was made of it. Oh, it was a yeah. movie, too? Mm -hmm. Well, it's a very heartwarming story. It's a nice story. But it's of a little boy who dies, and he goes to heaven. But in heaven, he's an angel. But he's a little boy angel, and he doesn't quite fit in with the regular adult angels. He's always playing with his halo and using it like a hoop and so on. It gets tarnished, and his robe always gets dirty, and how it gets dirty up in the clouds, I don't know exactly, but it does, and he's late for choir practice, and he just isn't fitting in very well there in heaven. But 
then they get word that the Christ child is, is to be born. And so they're getting together gifts to give to the Christ child. And what can he, a little boy, a little boy angel, give to the Christ child? Well, then he remembers that back on earth, he had a little box that he kept in his room. And it had little treasures like a seashell and other little things like that that he loved as a little boy. And he somehow manages to go back to earth and get that box. And he presents that box to the Christ child. And it turns out that's the gift the Christ child values among all others. Well, as I said, it's a nice story. It's a heartworking warming story. But again, it is not accurate. We don't become angels in heaven. Angels were specially created by God. They're at creation itself. And we will have fellowship with angels in heaven. But angels have never been people. And we will never be angels. Now, one other mistaken view is the view that we call soul sleep. Now, what do we mean by soul sleep? Well, soul sleep is the idea that when you die, you go to sleep. And you sleep in the grave until you are awakened by the trumpet there at the resurrection. I don't think the scripture teaches soul sleep. I think the scripture teaches that we will be resting, but it will be a rest that will not be the same as rest on earth. John Calvin put it this way. He said that what is the estate of souls after the separation of their bodies? The Anabaptists do think that they be asleep like dead. We say they have life and feeling. Luther has been accused of having believed in soul sleep, but I think that is a misunderstanding of what Luther is actually saying. Luther acknowledges that there's a lot about that state between when we die and when the resurrection takes place that we don't really understand. But it is not sleep in the sense of sleep today. He says, it is certain that to this day, Abraham is serving God, just as Adam, Abel, Noah are serving God. And this we should carefully note, for it is divine truth that Abraham is living, serving God, and ruling with him. But what sort of life that may be, whether he is asleep or awake, is another question. How the soul is resting, we are not to know. But it is certain that the soul is living. Another occasion, he says, But there is a difference between the sleep or rest of this life and that of the future life. For in this life, a man, fatigued by the day's work, enters his bedroom at night in order there to sleep in peace and to enjoy rest during the night, nor is he conscious of any evil that is happening, be it fire or murder. But the soul does not sleep in this matter. It is more properly speaking awake and has visions and conversations deeper or, I'm sorry, visions and conversations with the angels and God. Therefore, the sleep of the future life is deeper than that of this life, 
and yet the soul lives before God. With this image, drawn from the sleep of a living man, I am satisfied, for peace and quiet dwell in such a man. He thinks that he has slept scarcely an hour or two, and yet he observes that the soul sleeps in such a way that it is awake at the same time. Thus, the soul enters this chamber in peace after death and is at rest, though it is not conscious of its sleep, and God keeps the soul awake in it. Luther suggests that during this period, we will not be conscious of the passing of time, and that when the resurrection occurs, we will awaken just as though we had just gone into the grave just a few seconds before. All that intermediate time, whether it's a few seconds or a few thousand years, we won't be conscious of the passage of time. As he says, I have often tried to note the moment during which I either fall asleep or wake up, but I have never been able to catch it or to prevent sleep from moving in on me before I knew it and was aware of it. Our death and resurrection will also be like that. We pass away, and on judgment day we return before we are aware of it, nor shall we know how long we have been dead. However, the white-robed martyrs of Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11, seem to have some awareness of time. They ask, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on earth? They seem to have some awareness of time. We're going to talk about the state of heaven in a few weeks, and when we do that, we'll let's talk about timelessness in heaven. We won't be bound by time like we are here, but... I don't think that means time will totally cease to exist. Well, let's put all this together. How much time do we have, Brad? you got about uh, 10 minutes. Okay, let's put all this together. Scripture doesn't really tell us much about this intermediate state. But it does tell us as much as we need to know. We know this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. We're told that in the Psalms. We're also told that in Revelation. In fact, that passage in Revelation I find especially meaningful. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord, and their works shall follow them. That particular passage there, and their works shall follow them, I find to be especially meaningful. Notice it doesn't say their works precede them. Your works don't open the door to heaven for you. But your works will have eternal significance. And so works are important. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. It will be a blessed state. Absent from the body, present with the Lord, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 5.8. Or to depart and be with Christ, which is better, as he says in Philippians 1. It will be a state of rest. But it will be a conscious communion with God. In other words, it won't be rest in the way we think of rest. So it will be a blessed state, something that we can definitely look forward to. Well, Brian, what thoughts do you have? I think... Uh... These are questions that people don't uh, like to think about, 
because it can be a little bit scary in that we 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 don't know for certain the answers. We have some guides, we have scripture to teach us, and we have, um, you know, sometimes I think people may have experiences that, uh, uh, spiritual experiences that lend comfort uh, when a loved one passes, but I think it's not until someone close to us has passed that we really stop and contemplate this kind of thing. And it's, I think it's a good thing to have in mind though, not that uh, we want to be obsessed with uh, the end of our life, but a person who is at peace with, with what is to come and who believes that there is something um, not only there, but, but better than what, what we have here in so many ways um, could face it with, with courage and, and, and face it with the, the knowledge that, you know, there, this is not, you know, the, the end. So the only time I think I've really been bothered by, by someone's death is when I was young, a friend's sister was hit by a car walking home from school and, and died. And I think we were maybe 13 and that shook us because at that age, we still, we still feel immortal. Like, Oh, we've got, you know, our whole lives ahead of us. And for someone that young to die, I know that uh, for me, I was very contemplative for months after that about uh, what really happens, you know, what, uh, it, it kind of forced me to confront to my own mortality at a time when I really didn't, uh, but I just took for granted. I shouldn't have to. Absolutely. John Adams talked about when he was a child, how in school he would read the New England Primer. As a little child, he would read, There is a dreadful, fiery hell where wicked ones must always dwell. There is a heaven full of joy where goodly ones must always stay. To one of these my soul must fly, as in a moment when I die. In the burying place may see graves shorter there than I. From death's arrest, no age is free. Young children, too, must die. My God, may such an awful sight awakening be to me. Those days, it seems people were conscious of death and conscious that it could take place at any time. In fact, infant mortality was much more common than that it is now. And, but... Point simply being this, that yes, death can occur at any time. It can occur when we were children. It can occur as adults. Remember, we had a man in the church that we attended in Montgomery here, Alabama at that time. He had just retired from his work and was planning on, in his retirement, spending much more time in Christian mission work and so on. And then he was killed in a car accident at an intersection. And I think about that man often. That night when he went to bed, he certainly wasn't thinking, this is going to be my last night on earth. The next morning, he wasn't thinking, this is going to be my last day. I will never see the sunset. Even as he approached that intersection, he wasn't thinking within a few seconds or a few minutes. I'm going to be standing before God. But it happened. It can happen to any one of us. And we live on probabilities many times. And we have to. You approach that intersection, and you have the right of way. This car coming toward you on the right has a stop sign. You assume that he's going to stop for that stop sign. In fact, you stake your life on the fact that he's going to stop for that stop sign, but you also know 
It's possible he might not. A couple that I knew, a good friend of mine through Officers Christian Fellowship, he and his wife, <clears throat> one morning they were getting dressed and talking about their day, and his wife asked him a question, and he didn't answer, and she heard a thud, and he had just fallen to the floor. He'd had an aneurysm in his brain, and the doctor said he was probably dead before he hit the floor. Wow. It happened to any of us. And what it means is we need to be prepared. We need to settle that account with God by trusting in Jesus Christ and trusting in what he did for us on the cross. And I hope our listeners, most of them I trust, probably already have settled that account. There's a hymn, the old account was settled long ago, and it needs to be. Recognizing Christ died on the cross to pay for our sins, and we need to trust in him to apply that to our lives. And I just say to any and all of our listeners, if you haven't already settled that account by trusting in Christ, you can certainly do so today. You can do so right now. Simply say, Lord, I believe in you. I believe you are God's son. I believe you died to pay the penalty on that cross for my sins. I trust you. And the account is settled. That's what it's all about. I wish I knew for sure. Like I'm sure a lot of people do. It'd be a lot easier if we just, you know, okay, well, <laughs> we've got this locked down. But I think that uh, this is one of those areas where we get to develop our faith. And and if I could just share, you know, a, a quick experience. When my grandfather passed away, um, I had the privilege of being there at his side as he took his last breath. And all of us in the room, you know, were quietly weeping. Um, it was it was sad to see his life come to an end, but he was well into his 80s. It was not like, oh, he had his whole life ahead of him. You know, we we recognized it. It really was his time to go. I don't know exactly what happened at the moment that he passed, but the thing that stands out in my mind was all of us were sitting there quietly with tears running down our faces, and suddenly this incredible sense of peace filled the room. And I mean, like every tear stopped flowing and we just looked at each other going, wow. And I don't know how to describe it other than it felt right that this was, this was the proper end to a good life and that it was okay that he was now moving on. And uh, I, I just, I will never forget how the sorrow disappeared in, in the peace and the comfort in that moment. And I, I assume that was just, that was a blessing from God to assure us that, this is part of, you know, his plans. Mm-hmm. And and I, I can't tell you any more about, I, I don't understand exactly what happened, but I'll never forget that sense of peace. And, uh, and, and I still carry that with me. Whatever happened at that moment was absolutely right according to God. And, and I'm good with that. I hope it's that peaceful when it's my time. I do too. But let me add something else to that. And that's that that can certainly be said of somebody who dies in their 80s and so on, a good life completed. But when someone dies young, we think this is a tragic life, tragically cut short. But fact is, God has a time for each one of us. And he has a plan for each of our lives. There's things that he is teaching you, things that he is using you for. So long as you're alive, God's plan for you is not finished. When you die, 
whether it was as young, middle-aged, or old. It meant that God's plan for your life was finished, and he's ready to take you to be with himself. So hopefully you can have that same kind of peace, that same kind of comfort, even when we are talking about somebody who has died young. I think, as you said, it, just, it really comes down to, do you put your trust in God or not? Exactly. Exactly. 